Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to In Town Presbyterian Church. We're so glad to have you in worship with us, especially if you're visiting with us. You are our warmly welcomed guests. We've been going through a study of the Gospel of Luke, and this morning we've come to chapter 10, uh, the story of Mary and Martha. This is uh, Luke 10. This is our Gospel reading. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha. The Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we can all relate to Martha. We all live lives like that, whether it's Every other day, once in a while, whether it's every day of our lives where we feel tugged and distracted and pulled apart in so many ways. Father, even if we are Christians, we believe that the gospel is our center, that Jesus and his work is our center, and yet we can't find out, we can't figure out practically how that matters in the daily trials and struggles and duties of life. Or maybe we're asking different questions. Maybe we're here wondering if Jesus is really who he says he is, that this may sound a little naive, that one thing is most important in life and can direct and guide us in all other parts of our lives. Father, wherever we're coming from, wherever, whatever questions we have, would you meet us there? Would you walk into our lives afresh with the good news of Jesus Christ and all of his work? We pray in his name and pray that you would guide us during this time. Anyone remember the movie City Slickers? Billy Crystal, Jack Palance, and a few other characters. Got to go way back to 1991. Billy Crystal is 39, and he's wondering about life and mortality and what is the meaning of life. And so his wife tells him, Billy, well, that wasn't his name in the movie. Um, I don't remember what his name was. Billy, you've lost your smile. You've lost your way. And so he and three, two of his buddies go to a dude ranch where they are going to learn to be cowboys for two weeks. Now, Jack Palance has this great role. He's this crusty old cowboy, always has a cigarette in his, in his mouth. He has a face like a catcher's mitt. And these three city slickers are petrified by him. They're scared to death of him. But over time, they come to respect him. And Billy and Jack are riding on horses slowly, and he looks over at Jack Palance, Curly, and he says, Curly, your life makes sense. It's simple. And they stop, and Curly says, you city people just don't get it. You spend 50 weeks tying your life in knots, and you think two weeks up here is going to untie them. You know what the secret of life is? Your finger? No. One thing, one thing, everything else don't mean, well, we'll leave it there since we're in church. 
but who do you relate to? Jack Palance, Curly, or Billy Crystal? Does your life have one thing, one thing? Do you organize all of the rest of your life around that one foundational component? Does life make sense? Is it simple? You have your priorities in order, and you're able to say yes and no to the right things. You don't get easily distracted as Martha does in this story. Well, Luke is telling us about Martha, and probably like you and I, at least sometimes, we're kind of like this Billy Crystal character. We don't have the one thing quite figured out, or maybe we say we do, but we haven't quite figured out how to let our lives settle down into that one thing. Martha, maybe you and I needed a few weeks or 52 weeks on a ranch to learn how to live by one thing. Jesus says, Martha, you're troubled by many things. You're distracted by many things. But I have one thing for you, one thing to order all of your life by. We're going to look just simply at two things, two women in this story and one way or one thing. The two women, Mary and Martha, and then the one thing that Jesus has to offer both of them and us as well, if we'll pay attention. Now, first of all, two women. At first glance, it seems like Jesus is critiquing Martha for serving while he is giving value to what Mary is doing, that is sitting and contemplating. But last week, the conclusion of the story, the Good Samaritan, you remember the last line that Jesus said, go and do likewise. And then this passage, right before, he's talking about action and service, and this is the right thing to choose. And then here we have Martha, who's serving, who's doing hospitality, who's doing, and her actions are treated with disdain. But we need to look a little bit deeper, because the distinction here is not hard work on one hand versus the contemplative life. The distinction is not serving versus sitting. We have to look deeper. What does it say about Martha? It says three things. Well, more than that, but three things in particular. One is that she's upset, she's anxious, and she's distracted. Let's look at these things in order and see if we can kind of draw out the root and diagnose what's going on in Martha's heart. And when you and I get upset, anxious, and distracted, what do we need to see? How do we need to get at the bottom of what's producing those emotions? First of all, she's upset. Well, why? Why is she upset? She's been left alone to prepare a meal for a household of people, including their friend and rabbi, Jesus. Perhaps you've been there. You're hustling around. You're trying to get the house ready. You're sweeping. You're cooking. And your house is a mess. The kids are running around. Your spouse is not interested in helping. And it all falls to you. And you're upset. But beyond that, Mary is not just not helping. She's doing the unthinkable. And she's not getting reprimanded by Jesus. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's assuming the position of a disciple. You're not supposed to do that if you're a woman. That's the posture of someone who's preparing to be a rabbi. She's crossing all sorts of traditional gender uh, roles and barriers that were highly valued and highly articulated in that culture. I remember a number of years ago when the news network started placing women on the sidelines of football games and in the locker rooms, and there was quite a stir, particularly among men. What do they know about football? 
What could they share? What insights could they give us about football? What business do they have on the sidelines of a male-dominated sport? Well, that's nothing compared to what's going on here. It's difficult to get our heads around how scandalous it was that Mary was intermingling with men in the position of one studying to be a rabbi. But Martha is not so much pointing that out or concerned necessarily about that. What is she jealous of? She's jealous that Mary is sitting and not helping, sitting while she's standing, while she's running herself ragged, trying to get things ready, trying to get the meal prepared. She's got a lot to prepare, and if she doesn't get help, she's going to fail. She's worried about looking badly in front of Jesus and everyone that's gathered there. Her one thing at that moment is personal success based upon the outward expectations of that culture. She wants to put on a good show, and Mary's not cooperating. So she's upset. She's angry with her sister. But secondly, she's also anxious. What does she say? Lord, don't you care? Don't you care about my situation, my plight? How often is that our question, our complaint? Jesus, don't you care? Don't you see? Don't you notice? Don't you recognize what's going on in my life? Don't you see my hard work? I've done everything you've asked me to do, and yet you don't show up when I need you to. You're not paying attention. I remember entering into my senior year in high school, and I felt like I was in a pretty comfortable position socially. I had arranged my life and had worked very hard for this certain set of friends that I said, this is who I belong to. These are my people. And I was fairly cunning in the way that I could make myself sort of the center of attention. And I kind of viewed myself as the, you know, the Ferris Bueller or the cool hand Luke of this little group. It wasn't a big group, wasn't on top of the world, but at least this little group I could manage and I could control and I could make sure their opinions were very positive of me. And I was the center of this little group. And then Emilio Amade happened. He was an exchange student from Spain, here for one year, my senior year. He was dashingly handsome. He was very funny. He was articulate, and yet with a Spanish cool accent. And he was an artist, and I hated him. Actually, I kind of liked him. He was funny, and I enjoyed being around him. But he was stealing the spotlight. He was upstaging me in my senior year. So I did what any super-calculating, manipulative person would do in that situation. I set out to make him my best friend. If you can't beat him, join him. I was going to be his compadre. I was going to be his best friend. And therefore, I could at least share the stage. I wasn't going to be upstaged anymore. I was going to be there with him. How we long for people to notice us. How we long to be recognized for things that we value, to feel that someone really cares about us or a group really cares about us. Jesus seems to be giving attention to Mary and not Martha, and it makes her anxious. And what does this insecurity do? It causes her to doubt Jesus. It causes her to doubt his concern and care for her. Lord, don't you care about me? 
and it causes her strife between her sister and her. She wants Jesus to rebuke Mary. She's upset, she's anxious, and she's distracted. She's distracted with much serving. Now, in this culture, as we've seen throughout the study of Luke, hospitality was a preeminent value. You could shame your entire family by not providing hospitality well to someone. And normally it was the male head of the household who had the ostensible responsibility while the the females generally carried it out. But here, we don't know about a male head of the household. It says it's Martha's house. We know that they have a brother, Lazarus, but Luke points to her as the one who is the head of the household. Now, what does this mean? It means that she has double responsibility. She has the expectation that comes with being the house owner or the head of the household. But unlike a man, she has to actually execute on the hospitality. She has to carry out the duties, not only the higher responsibility, but also she has to actually do it. And all of these people are in her home. Jesus, their friend and rabbi, is there. And it's a huge responsibility. A lot rides on whether or not she does a good job in terms of hospitality. But it says she's distracted. Now, this doesn't mean that she forgot to put out the kosher salt and pepper shakers. It doesn't mean that she's forgetting things. The Greek word actually means that she's overburdened, that she's sinking under the weight of someone's expectations. And in this case, it's the cultural responsibility of that day. It's hospitality that she's sinking under the weight of cultural expectations. Katie and I first experienced this when we moved from Alabama to the Bay Area. We had done ministry mostly among college students. And college students, you know, you put some uh, soda pop or whatever on the table, they're happy because they're poor. They don't have a lot of money to buy things. So when you host them in your home, it's easy to take care of them. But all of a sudden, we were in homes of people making hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars a year and hosting them in our homes. These were people that knew a lot about wine. I knew that there was red and white. These were people that knew a lot about cheese, good cheese, and I knew craft. That was pretty much my repertoire of putting good cheese on the table. Suddenly, all of the furniture that used to seem adequate for hosting people in our home seemed worn out and out of date. And the food that we would have normally prepared to host people seemed very unsophisticated. Now, everyone was very gracious, but in the early days of being there, before we got to know them, these expectations were crushing. We had to learn a lot. We had to figure out good wine, good cheese, even olives. I still don't like olives to this day. But to host people in California, you have these expectations, and they were crushing because we didn't know how to navigate. We didn't know all of the expectations. We'd bump into them and say, oh, that's what you're supposed to do. Now, what's the one thing that was driving me in those situations? What's the one thing that's driving Martha, that's distracting, that's overburdening her, that she's sinking underneath the weight of? It's the narrative of personal success based upon the dominant culture, based upon others' expectations. This is her one thing. This was my one thing. What do other people expect of me, and how can I do the best job of living up to those expectations? And if I don't, I'm crushed. But notice, she's crushed because she can no longer dictate 
the opinions of others. She can no longer gerrymander the situation to make sure that people think well of her. But even if she succeeds, even if she does a great job, she's constantly on the lookout for personal slight. She's constantly on the lookout for someone who doesn't value the things that she values. Her one thing means that she can't win even if she does a great job. In ignoring the duties in the kitchen, Mary isn't just saying, I don't want to help you, Martha. She's saying that she's not driven by the same things that Martha is driven by. She's not defined by the dominant cultural narratives of her day. That's what Jesus is saying. That's why this is so scandalous, because Mary gets it, and she says, I don't care about the cultural narratives. I don't care about these traditional values. What I value is being next to Jesus. What I value is sitting at his feet. She is devaluing Martha's one thing. She's belittling the thing at the very center of Martha's world, and Jesus is letting her. And so Martha challenges Jesus. She challenges the rabbi, not just because she needed more help, but because he was accommodating the very one who was stepping on her idol. Mary was stepping on the thing at the center of Martha's life, and Jesus was saying, okay, this is okay. She is choosing the good thing. What about you? What are the expectations that you're sinking underneath? What values lie at the center of your life that are vulnerable to personal slight, that make you angry when someone either doesn't value them or steps on them in some way? What things must people around you uphold? Maybe it's exactly what Martha struggled with. Maybe it's your home. Maybe it's keeping a very exacting regimen at home that makes sure whenever anyone pops in that things are not in disarray, but they're clean. And you get angry with your spouse or your children because they don't cooperate. They leave things sitting on the table. They don't pick up after themselves. Maybe it's your body or your appearance. You're sinking underneath the expectation of looking a certain way. Maybe it's your lifestyle. And you get upset, therefore, at someone who gets a promotion that you don't get, that someone advances more quickly than you do. It makes you very anxious because what if you can't maintain the lifestyle you've become accustomed to? Kids, maybe you're like I was. You're desperate to belong, and you'll do anything to pursue that belonging, even degrading yourself, degrading your personality. Now, we're tempted to say, well, of course, Those are the wrong things. Don't let those things drive you. But it's not that simple because we'll just choose something better. We'll look at the story last week from the Good Samaritan and say, aha, I get it. I'm supposed to not treat people based on ethnicity. I'm supposed to be above that. I'm supposed to go across the street and help people. Or like Mary, I'm supposed to spend more time in contemplation. Now, these things are undeniably good, but we can use them just as easily to get applause and acclaim as we can all of these bad things that we've served before. It takes Jesus to, tur- to show up and turn over the tables in our hearts to see it, help us see a totally different way. She had many troubles, and Jesus says, Martha, Mary, in towners, I have one thing for you. What is this one way? 
what tells us in verse 39, that Mary sat at the Lord's feet. She is listening to what he said. Now, that translation doesn't quite get at the simplicity here. It makes it more complex. What it says is that she is listening to his word, singular. In Luke, what is the word correlated with? What is Jesus' word in the gospel of Luke? It's the good news of the kingdom. It's that lame are walking. It's that the blind are now seen. It's that God has not abandoned his people, but he has sent a merciful Messiah to redeem them. It's that the poor and the marginalized of society are being lifted up and welcomed. It's that social taboos and former barriers are being destroyed and that you no longer have to define yourselves by those things. And it's that God loves people like Martha, like Mary, like you and I, and is remaking the world through them. This is her one thing the good news of the kingdom. She sits at Jesus' feet and listens to his word. Martha is troubled by many things, but Mary is comforted by one thing. And if you get this, if you get this one thing, if you begin to understand the kingdom, understand the gospel, understand the, king, the good news of the kingdom, you don't have to be upset anymore by personal slight or injustice, because you know that God has ultimately been just to you. You don't have to be anxious about being noticed because you know that God has known your name from eternity. You don't have to sink underneath the weight of others' expectations because God has destroyed all other measures, all other expectations that could be placed upon you to say, this is how you know you're a good person. He says, you're done with that forever. In fact, I have met every expectation. Jesus says, I've met every expectation that God himself could have of you. You don't have to sink under the, underneath the weight of artificial expectations, cultural expectations any longer because Jesus has met every expectation of God himself. This makes for a person who isn't constantly looking over their shoulder to see what people are saying or incessantly measuring themselves by artificial benchmarks. It makes for joy. It makes for peace. It makes for a life that's not distracted and pulled in a hundred different areas, but it makes for a, a singularity of purpose. But of course, you can't just flip the switch. You know this. If you're a Christian or not, you've probably tried to figure out what is my purpose, what is my mission, what is the one thing that I can organize life around. I feel distracted, I feel harried, I feel rushed. What could it be? What is that one thing? And you know, even if you figure it out, you can't just flip a switch and now everything makes sense. You, this doesn't just become your conscious reality over, overnight. This is why the one thing must be sitting at Jesus' feet. Now, the distinction, however, is not sitting versus service. Mary doesn't get it right because she's contemplative. We could walk away and say, okay, this is my new duty. I'm going to get the one thing by being contemplative. Sitting at the feet of Jesus is much more a position of submission. It's a position of surrender. It's a willingness to be a disciple. It's a willingness to define your life by his word rather than the word of others. You see, it's not just being contemplative. 
It's not just being dutiful, although these things, of course, help. One of the aspects of, that you, you come to understand as a Christian, as you get to know Jesus, is, is that it takes time. It takes effort to begin to redefine yourself by Jesus' word rather than the word of others. But the first step, in fact, the step every day is sitting at Jesus' feet in a position of surrender and saying, Jesus, what matters about me, what matters about my life is your word, not the word of others, not even my own word. It means stopping and deliberately surrendering. It's a daily decision of lordship. Mary is the role model, not because of her actions, not because she's sitting still, but it's because of her posture. It's because she is saying Jesus is the most important thing in the whole world. I will drop everything to be at his feet. I will surrender everything. I will do what is unexpected of me. I will give no regard to everyone else's voices and what they say I should be doing right now. I'm going to sit at his feet. She's found the one thing in the word of Jesus in the gospel. And what does Jesus say? No, Martha, I'm not going to ask her to give this up. I'm not going to take this away from her. It will not, it will never be taken away from her. Whatever else you make your one thing will fail and leave you and curse you. But Jesus says, everything I give you, I will never, ever take away Do you see, friends, why that's so much more solid, so much more valid, why it could be taken as as a serious contender for the one thing? It's because Jesus, the God of the universe, says, I will give you everything. The good news of my kingdom is that you don't have to strive anymore. You don't even have to please God in order for him to be pleased with you. I have done all of the work that is necessary for you. Be free. This is the one thing that you live by. Now, one more little bit of good news. We've talked a lot about Mary being the exemplar here, but how does Jesus respond to Martha? He doesn't grant her specific requests, but he says, Martha, Martha. It's an address of love. It's an address of affection that even in the midst of us blowing it severely, missing it, he says, Martha, Martha. As we come to the table, we are reminded, we're revisiting the one thing that is most important, that is most solid, that is most eternal. It is the body and the blood of Jesus. That your one thing, if you're a Christian, is the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Think on that as we come to the table and let that be your one thing today, this week. Let's pray to that end. Father, we're so tempted now to walk away with uh, an idea of doing better, of working harder, of spending more time in contemplation. And certainly these things are valid, and you may be calling us to that. But, Father, let us not miss the one thing of the gospel, the one thing of freedom, the one thing of submission to you and surrender. And I pray that as we come to this table you would root that deeper in our lives and our outlook and our experience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.